Well, tonight we will finish 1 Samuel. And remember the whole theme of 1 Samuel has been lessons from the heart. And so as we come to this final lesson tonight, uh, I wanted to share a couple of things with you at first. Pulitzer Prize winner Donna Tartt in her 2016 novel, The Goldfinch, stated, sometimes we want what we want even if we know it's going to kill us. Sam Stevens, I don't know who he is, but his quote is all over the internet. He said, sometimes you hit a point where you either change or you self-destruct. The first quote I mentioned is embodies Saul's life. He wants what he wants even though he knows it's going to kill him. The second one, though, lists his options. You can either change or self-destruct. And Saul chose to self-destruct. And so as we close out 1 Samuel tonight, we're going to get front row seats to his sad ending and be reminded that God doesn't promise to keep us from difficulties, but He does promise to help our wayward hearts if we'll repent. So chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. It says, now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded by the archers. And then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. And so Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men that same day together. Very sad lines in Scripture. We start here in verse 1. It says, now the Philistines fought against Israel. The word now there is while all the other stuff was going on with David that we read about in chapter uh, 30 and, and 29. So while all that's going on, Israel and the Philistines are fighting a war. And so, you know, while things were bad indeed for David and his men, things were worse, far worse for the rest of Israel because their leader had turned his back to the Lord. And so, as Samuel told Saul, the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. You know, when we read about everything that Samuel told Saul, did the thing Samuel told Saul ever not happen? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of minded of uh, the passage in, I think it's 1 Kings, but it might be 2 Kings, um, where Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, goes up to spend time with King Ahab, and uh, they've got this treaty, and they said, let's go fight against Syria. I think it's Syria. And uh, the Jehoshaphat says, hey, you know, can we seek the Lord about this? You know, I'm, I'm with you, man. We got, we're allies, but can we seek the Lord about this? And any word from the Lord? And so he brings in all these false prophets, and, and they're all saying weird stuff. And Jehoshaphat turns to Ahab, he goes, don't we have any prophets of the Lord here? And I love Ahab's answer. It's horrible. I just love it because it's so human, so human. He goes, <laughs> he goes yeah, I've got one. But he doesn't tell me anything good. <laughs> you kind of think to yourself, 
yeah, but if it happens, then maybe you should be listening to him. Everything that Samuel told Saul happened just like Samuel said. And yet Saul expected a different result every time, digging in his heels and taking God head on. If that's not the definition of a self-destructive heart, I don't know what is. I mean, that's madness. It's like Jacob getting his hip knocked out, and he's like, you know, no, I can still take him. No, I mean, Jacob at that point, he's like, please don't go without blessing me, you know. If you leave me like this, I'm done for. That's the difference between a Jacob and a Saul. You know, both of them were messed up, but one of them finally surrendered, and the other one just kept fighting. Didn't realize he was dead until he was dead. It's madness. But we do it sometimes, don't we? We do the same thing sometimes. And some, like Saul, live most of their life that way. Listen, don't destroy everything you've worked so hard to build because you're building your own foundation. You know, in Psalm 127, we read it a couple times in the last few chapters of 1 Samuel, that unless the Lord build the house, they that labor to build it labor in vain. You know? Unless the Lord is the one who's watching over you, then those that keep watch, watch in vain. It's, it's a waste of time. Now, the fact that Saul orders a retreat here, that they flee, means that he still somehow thinks that he could escape God's words yet again. And just like every other time, it doesn't work. Look at verse 2. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul. The phrase there, followed hard upon, it's the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when it says, and, you know, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife. The word cleave, it's the same word here. The idea here is they were, they, they were fle- the Israelites were fleeing, but the Philistines were determined not to let them get away. They followed hard upon Saul in particular. They were catching up to him, overtaking him, and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew three of Saul's sons. Saul had four sons. Ishbosheth had been left behind to govern things in Saul's absence. We'll get to know him a little better when we get to 2 Samuel. But he's the only one left after this. Jonathan, Abinadab, Melchishua, Saul's other three boys are all, all dead. Jonathan will get his meaningful goodbye in 2 Samuel from David. But even knowing that that's coming, this still feels so unnecessary. Like, did you ever read about Jonathan and then this like feels like, that's it? <laughs> like, that's just it? That's, that's over? Jonathan's done? I mean, it's just this guy who took on, you know, Philistines that outnumbered him and, you know, and he was this godly man and then, and then this is it. That's it for Jonathan. They're all just dead and gone from the scene. One of the problems with having a self-destructive heart is that it tends to create pain and destruction for the people who are closest to you. Sin is never in a vacuum. It just doesn't work that way. God designed us to be connected, and thus my sin affects those I'm connected to. And sometimes it does so in very awful ways like here. Don't ever fool yourself into thinking that the only one with the consequences for your sin is you. Because whether it's intended or not, it will affect those who are closest to you. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, that means people who love God miss out on their hopes and dreams too. Jonathan never planned to die on this battlefield. 
I mean, he was a warrior. He was one of the highest ranking soldiers in Saul's army. I'm sure he expected that he might die in a battlefield someday, but not here, not like this. Jonathan's dream, his plan, was to be David's right-hand man when David became king. That's what he told David. When you're king, I'll be right by your side supporting you. I personally wonder if David would have made some of the mistakes he did as king if Jonathan was by his side instead of a joker named Joab. But this dream of Jonathan went unfulfilled because of Saul. Now, while Saul survives this initial engagement, harassment from the Philistines, he doesn't get away unaffected. Verse 3 says, and the battle went sore against Saul. It became heavy. They were killed his sons, who obviously would be fighting to protect him. And so they get through there, and so the battle is thick around Saul. I mean, there's fighting right where Saul's at. And then it mentions that the archers hit him. That's a, a bad uh, translation. Um, the word there just means to discover. Hit means to discover or find. Um, you know, as the battle is moving heavy towards Saul, the archers actually locate Saul's position. And it says here that he was sore wounded by the archers. Again, a horrible translation. It just means he trembled greatly because of the archers. Saul was never hit with an arrow. Saul wasn't hit at this point. The archers were aiming at his location, and he knew there was no escape. That's why he's trembling greatly. And so, in verse 4, Saul decides to destroy himself before the Philistines can. It says, Then Saul said unto his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. It is a bit ironic to me that the man who Saul turns to end his life, turns to to end his life, is in the position that David used to have. The man who had been by Saul's side and together they had defeated many Philistines. David's not here now because Saul drove him away. He turns to this other man and he says, kill me. Stab me through with a sword lest the Philistines they don't just kill me, but they abuse me. The word abuse comes from a word that means to go over a second time. In other words, they're not just going to cut me once. Saul did not want to be slowly killed through torture. And so he said, just put an end to my life. Now, before we get to the armor bearer's response, I think that does bring up an important question. Is a looming threat like very likely torture in the future, a valid reason for suicide? Is there ever a valid reason for suicide? Well, the armor bearer's response, I think, gives us a clue to the answer to that question. For it says, but his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Phrase sore afraid means to be frightened in the highest degree. It's a phrase that's most often used when the Lord appears to somebody through an angel or something like that. Saul may have been terrified of torture, but this man was terrified of something greater than that. Now, I want you to, we're going to sneak peek 2 Samuel. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 1. I want to read to you some other verses that will help us to understand what it means when it says this armor bearer was very afraid, frightened to the highest degree. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, there was a young man who comes to David and his men to report that Saul is dead, that Saul and his sons are all dead. And he brings the crown of Saul. And so verse 5, David said to the young man that told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man that told him said, as I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear And lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me. And I answered, here am I. And he said unto me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. (laughs) We'll get to that in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, that significance. So he said unto me again, stand, or please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me because my life is yet whole in me. In other words, we'll see in a second when Saul does commit suicide, it doesn't work. He's still alive. He's worried about this torture still. So he tells him, kill me. Verse 10, so the Amalekite says, I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and I've brought them hither unto my Lord. (laughs) Look at verse 14. David said unto him, How are you not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Same word. David says two very important things in his question to this Amalekite. He says, Why aren't you afraid of doing this like the armor bearer was? And he reminds the man that Saul was the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, you remember when uh, David and Abishai sneak into Saul's camp when God supernaturally put them all to sleep, right? And they sneak into the camp, and Abishai says, let me smite him through. I just one shot, and he'll be dead. Your problems will be over, man. And David says to him, no, do not strike him. He said for, well, let me read it to you. I think it's 26 is what I said. 26, verse 9, and David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? That's, remember, why, did you, why was it okay for you to hit, kill the Lord's anointed? But then there's a second point, when he says, why weren't you fearful of doing that? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. That was David's mind, his reasoning for why he would not kill Saul. It was wrong. God's the one who determines the day of death. And then secondly, he was God's anointed. And so, David reverenced God enough that he wouldn't do it. You see, the fear of God is what the Amalekite lacked and what the armor bearer had and why their response to Saul's command to kill him was very different. Now, Saul did not fear God, so he thought suicide was a viable option. But just as striking down God's anointed wasn't a viable option, neither was suicide, even though a torturous future was very likely for Saul. There are many reasons that people commit suicide. Some are rooted in anger, and they do it as a way to get back at others. Some are rooted in hopelessness. 
Some are rooted in an inability to see beyond the pain to what God in His goodness can still give. But whatever the reason, it's never done in the fear of God. And that is why, no matter the reason, whatever difficult future awaits, suicide is never a viable option for the Christian. Never. Can a Christian struggle with not wanting to live? Certainly. <laughs> Paul did. <laughs> In 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says he despaired even of life. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he talks about this challenging time in the ministry for him and his team. He says, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. You ever felt like you've been squeezed so much that nothing's left that, you can, that can come out? Pressed out of measure, above strength. It was more than we could handle, insomuch that we despaired even of life. So, we do see Christians struggle with not wanting to live, with not wanting to go on. But if we keep reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see how Paul dealt with that struggle. In verse 9, right afterwards, he says, but, even though that's what we felt like, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead who delivers us from so great a death and does deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Suicide wasn't an option for Paul because it's never the Lord's will, never. Suicide is wrong. And as we see in the next verse, it brings harm to those around us. Look at verse 5 in 1 Samuel 31. It says, therefore, Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And verse 5 says, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. Now, this has always confused me. Why would the armor bearer, who is not okay with Saul killing himself, suddenly be okay with killing himself? <laughs> well, you have to understand something. An armor bearer wasn't just the guy that carried your armor around. It's not like this guy was just walking around saying, you still need it, you still need it, you still need it, you know? That's, that's not what it means to be an armor bearer, you know? You were like a, a right-hand man. A, you were the person's most trusted assistant, usually a high-ranking military man yourself. And your job was to be a living shield so that no one could harm the one that you were protecting. For an armor bearer to survive a battle where their charge did not, <laughs> it meant being executed for failing at your job. Saul's suicide is essentially this man's death warrant. And so while he hadn't given up hope before, Saul's death caused him to despair as well and take his own life. Did you know that the World Health Organization, for all of its reliability, do you know that the World Health Organization has media guidelines for reporting high-profile celebrity deaths? I've always wondered. I'm like, why don't they tell us what happened? I, I found out why this week. They have media guidelines. They suggest that the press refrain from describing the exact method of death because if it's a suicide or if it's even suspected that it's a suicide, it encourages others to commit suicide. 
A study released by researchers at Columbia University in 2018 stated that there was a 10% increase in suicides for four months after Robin Williams committed suicide. That's crazy. Males and persons aged 30 to 44 were the group that had the greatest increase in excess suicide events. People who could relate to some of the things that Robin Williams was going through. There is no such thing as a suicide that doesn't affect and certainly doesn't hurt other people. It leaves, leaves loved ones in great pain, and it can drive others to a place of despair. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts or not wanting to live anymore, please, please reach out to someone. Please get help for your own sake and for the sake of those who love you. Because no one wins when a suicide occurs. I, my life has not been touched by that event. But unfortunately, I've had to minister to those. I'm glad I get to, but sad for those who have. Folks that go through something like that are never the same. So if you're struggling, please reach out to somebody. I am so glad for the folks who reached out to me when I had my deepest struggles with depression. Verse 6 sums it up. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. All his men, First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 6, explains that it was all of his family members who went to the battle. Some Israelis did escape, as we'll see shortly. Now, this does mean that two of Saul's family members were not present here. Saul's fourth son, I already mentioned, Ishbosheth, but someone else surprisingly is absent, Saul's general, Abner. We're going to see him later on in 2 Samuel. I don't know why he wasn't here in what seems to be one of the most important battles Israel's ever fought. I have no clue. The Bible doesn't tell us. Ishbosheth was running the kingdom, so that makes sense, but I have no idea why Abner wasn't there. So if you want to know, you're going to have to ask Saul when you get to heaven. Which brings me on to a final topic on suicide before we move on. Because I said that last sentence the way I did on purpose. You will have to ask Saul when you get to heaven because I have every reason to believe that Saul is in heaven. In 1 Samuel 28 verse 19, it mentions there that Samuel says to Saul, you and your boys will be with me this time tomorrow. Now, I understand there's lots of different viewpoints on what actually is going on there, but I can tell you this. The word of God was true there. What happened, what he said would happen, happened. I know Samuel's in heaven, and we know that at least Jonathan is in heaven. And so the way that that statement is written, I have every reason to believe that Saul is being grouped with these other people who are in heaven, which leads us to believe that's where Saul is. Now, so object to that, of course, because they say, well, Saul, man, he was so disobedient to the Lord for his whole life. Yes, and I've met believers who are similar. But others object to that view by saying, yeah, but he committed suicide. A person can't you know, repent of suicide. They're dead. 
To which I would answer, I think you don't understand salvation. We are not saved by our ability to repent of every sin we ever commit. If that's the case, none of us are going to heaven. We are saved by Christ's completed work on the cross, certainly not by my completed work here. We are saved by turning from our sins and placing our trust in Christ. And sadly, that means some of us, like David, go to the grave with some things that were never dealt with. I would dare say there may be a lot of us that go to the grave with some things that we never dealt with. Samson is another man in the Bible who committed suicide. We know he's in heaven because he's listed as a person of faith in Hebrews 11.32. And so while suicide is wrong, it creates horrible pain for others and is never to be a viable option for a Christian, suicide in and of itself does not void one's salvation. Now, this massive defeat from the Philistines had dramatic effect upon most of Israel. Look at verse 7. When the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and they dwelt in them. We see here that when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, this refers to those who were both north and south of the battlefield, the Jezreel Valley area, and the men on the other side of Jordan. So these are the two and a half tribes that are over on what would be modern-day Syria and modern-day Jordan. It says that when they heard that Saul and his sons were dead and that the men of Israel fled, so the, the escaping soldiers, that's how we know some did escape from the battle, they abandoned their cities, and the Philistines moved in. This was a catastrophic event for the nation. I mean, people everywhere in a majority of Israel flee their homes, and the Philistines move in. This is the fruit of Saul's sin, his stubborn attempt to hold on to what he had didn't just self-destruct his plan for his life, he self-destructed over half the kingdom. And while there are certainly those people who just don't care about God and go to their grave that way, there are people who have had God's truth revealed to them and they fight God every step of the way, all the way to the grave. And for that person, self-destruction is the inevitable ending. You know, my kids are big Phineas and Ferb fans. And every one of the, the evil guy in there, and he's kind of not really good at being evil, doofenshmirtz, everything he makes has a self-destruct button. You're like, why do you even put that there, you know? This never works out for you. But you know, we laugh and we say that's dumb or that's silly, but I see people who construct their own self-destruct buttons all the time. So if you're fighting God right now, you have constructed a self-destruct button in your heart. And it will destroy more than you if that's how you finish your life. So please repent. Please yield to God's ways. Don't do this to yourself 
and to the others around you. Verse 8. It came to pass on the morrow, so the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain to remove their clothing and adornments, the spoils of war, it says that they found Saul and his three sons fallen dead in Mount Gilboa. And so they cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and they sent into the land of the Philistines round about. They basically Saul's head, his skull, later on, First Chronicles tells us it was his skull, and then his armor was paraded all throughout all the lands of the Philistines. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when the, you know, the, you know, like, uh, you know, the Siberian orchestra comes in. Is that the thing, the, the whole, the, the Christmas thing? Trans-Siberian, something like that? Yeah. It's like when they come into town, it's like, oh, Saul's head's in town, you know? It was a big deal. And they, they display his armor. And you'd, where would you go? It says you'd go to the temple. You'd go to the temple where their idols were. They would publish it in the house of their gods, their, their idols, and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Saul became a sight to see, a tourist event. And his armor was permanently placed in the temple of Ashtaroth. Uh, Ashtaroth was the queen of the Philistine pantheon. She's kind of the equivalent of Ishtar of Babylon or Aphrodite in Greece or Venus in Rome. She was a goddess of nature, fertility, and she was the object of the grove worship and their sexual rituals that are mentioned in the Scripture. And what's so sad here is that Saul was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles as he experienced God's hand of blessing on his life. Instead, unbelievers used his defeat as a symbol to encourage each other that their idolatry was just fine, that their gods were just as good of an option along with Jehovah. And at the very end, while they send his head off to be a tourist adventure, they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. The word fastened there means to hang a picture on a wall. I don't know if they nailed Saul's body there or if they just hung it from the wall. Either way, this is a grisly visual that we should have never had to see and wouldn't have seen if Saul at some point just backed down in his fight against God. Now, I'm glad the verse doesn't end, the book doesn't end there. Because while most of the people around this region are just running for their lives, some people courageously mount an attempt to rescue Saul's body from this desecration. Verse 11, and when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose, and they went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Here we see that the people of Jabesh-Gilead do Saul a great honor, and they do it out of gratitude for what Saul had done to them. You say, what did Saul do for them? You know, when we think of Saul, it's very easy to forget that he did do some very admirable things as king, that he had been a good example to the nation sometimes, mostly early on. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, why don't you turn there with me, and we'll revisit 
something positive about Saul's life. Now Saul has already been picked to be the king. He's already been revealed to be the king to the nation of Israel. But at this point in time, nobody's really buying it. <laughs> when Saul was chosen, they're like, ah, oh, no, not this guy. Ah, oh, no. And, and so there were many people who just kind of discounted him. And there was a small group of folks. I think the end of chapter 10 mentions that there was a band of men whose hearts God had touched that went with Saul, and they kind of became his you know, his elites, so to speak. But for the most part, Israel just kind of went back to regular everyday stuff. Every man doing that which was right in his own eyes. But in chapter 11, something happens in Israel. In verse 1, it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we'll serve you. Hey, we don't want a war. Just make a treaty with us. We'll be your slaves. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all of your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. That way nobody will think to mess with me. <laughs> well, the elders of Jabesh liked their right eyes, and so they said unto him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, then we'll come out and we'll give you our right eyes. It doesn't say that, but that's, we'll come out to you, and that's the idea. We'll we'll do what you say. Better than being dead. Well, verse 4, then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people. And so all the people are lifting up their voices. They're weeping. And behold, Saul, <laughs> love, here's a new king, new king of Israel. What's he doing? He's out taking care of the cattle. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, what ails the people that they weep? What's going on? Everybody's so sad. And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly that no one had responded to this. And so he took a yoke of oxen, his own oxen, and he hewed them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the borders of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whosoever does not come forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the Bible says as a result of this leadership tactic that Saul used, that the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. Israel, that had been divided, they had been fighting war. Saul's own tribe, Benjamin, had almost been wiped out. They all agree. No one had been sticking up for each other, and now they decide behind his leadership to do so. And so if you read the rest of the story, Saul is very courageous in this fight to rescue their brothers in Jabesh-Gilead. For that... These people were forever grateful to Saul. And so in the same way that Saul courageously rescued them, they send their best warriors to courageously rescue Saul and his son's bodies. And so verse 12 says, all the valiant men arose, their best warriors. And they went all night. Jabesh is not far from Bethshan. In fact, if you go to Israel with us sometime in the future, if the Lord tarries, then we can get back in there. And you go to Bethshan, we'll show you where Jabesh Gilead is. And they traveled all night to get there, though, because, you know, they don't want to fight. They just want to get in there and get the body. And when they get there, they take the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they bring them back to Jabesh, and they burnt their bodies there, and then they take their bones and they bury them under a tree at Jabesh, and they fasted 
for seven days. Why did they fast? Well, there's lots of reasons you might fast back then, but most likely here it was because they were mourning. They were truly sad that their king was dead. These people loved their king because of what he'd done for them. And in this, we see the sad missed potential of Saul because I wish we had more stories like this about him. And so, we come to the end of 1 Samuel. It is sad that 1 Samuel ends with a hard lesson from a hardened heart. But if you think about it, this is kind of the way that the book started, right? If we were to go all the way back to chapter 1, we begin with the first heart we see is Hannah's heart, right? And is that a happy story at first? No, it's not. We find Hannah weeping so hard that she can't even verbalize her prayer to the Lord. We began the book of 1 Samuel with someone with a broken heart. And so as we have traveled throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we saw Hannah and Samuel and David whose hearts were broken on many occasions. And yet we saw each of their hearts restored as they turned to the Lord. On the other hand, as we traveled through 1 Samuel, we also saw Eli and Saul. And we saw their lives destroyed as their hearts self-destructed, in Eli's case, literally. The main lesson of 1 Samuel, as we're looking at the heart, it isn't that a godly heart doesn't experience pain or loss or unfairness or mistreatment. The main lesson of 1 Samuel is that I have a choice of what to do when my heart experiences those challenges. I can be a Samuel or a David or a Hannah, or I can be an Eli or a Saul. And so my hope this evening as we close this out is that our study of 1 Samuel will have helped you to see the value of taking your heart to the Lord, no matter what its condition may be, that he might shape it in a way that pleases him. And so I want to leave you with Psalm 84. We read the whole psalm in our scripture reading, but I wanted to highlight a few verses. In Psalm 84, this is not a psalm of David. It is a psalm by the sons of Korah. They were a worship group that served the Lord. We don't know exactly when they wrote this because by the time David's around, he actually has three different worship leaders. So I don't know if this is an early song written before David. I don't know if it's a song written later on. But these were Levites who had been chosen to serve and help the priests in the tabernacle. And they wrote this song. Beginning in verse 5, there's a few things that I would like to share with you. In verse 5, it says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, the Lord, in whose heart are the ways of them. It's interesting, that the, in the phrase, in the heart of whose ways are in them, if you notice when I read, I read it from a New King James in our scripture reading because that's the Bibles we pass out and uh, people get confused. I'm an old King James guy because I'm an old dog and I'm not learning any new tricks. But 
there are places where the New King James has a preferable translation. In this one, it says, blessed is a man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. That's interesting. We are far more concerned about destination than we are about journey, <laughs> right? So when I'm in the middle of my heart being a mess, I just want God to fix it, right? And if he doesn't, sometimes I find my own way to try to fix it. The Lord, however, is far more interested in journey. And so the scriptures here say, blessed is the man whose strength is in the Lord and whose heart is on a journey, that he's embraced that. Who, as a result of embracing that, he passes through the valley of Baca and turns it into a well. And the rain also fills the pools. That person goes from strength to strength. And every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. What is the songwriter saying there? He's saying, that's the man I want to be. That's the man I want to be. And so my hope is this, is that we will make that our prayer as we are going to move on from 1 Samuel and move somewhere else. That it will have impacted us in such a way that we can say, Lord, that's the woman or the man I want to be. I want to be a man after your own heart. Someone who's involved in the journey that even when it's hard, I will run to you. Amen? Let's all stand. And tonight is proof that I can do 13 verses in less than an hour. The Bible says that He has loved us with an everlasting love. He is worthy of our trust. Saul didn't believe that, but others did. So, Lord, tonight we make our choice that we want to be like David and Hannah and Samuel. Three very different lives, three different struggles. Some of them handled it better than others. But in the end, each one of them turned to you with all the brokenness that was in their hearts. Lord, that's our commitment tonight. And even if we keep falling down, then we'll get back up and look to you. So, Lord, take our hearts, we pray. And hear our prayer. Make us men and women who, when we're going through the valley, that we turn it into a well. That we're okay with being in the valley because you're with us. And your rain will fill those pools. Lord, let us be men and women who go from strength to strength that reach the destination of not things just being better, but being in Zion with you. At your temple, worshiping you, yielded to you in your presence. That's our prayer, O oh Lord. We join our hearts to the sons of Korah. In Jesus' name, amen.